something grips me and I retell the story to my even my children or my wife, they're still waiting for the punchline and I'm all done. But um, that's what, and I'll try to relate that story um, later on in the message today. Years ago, installing some equipment in one of my co-workers' home, <clears throat> he was a new worker. I'd never met his family before, and I was called to his home to install some equipment to let him enjoy the beauty of the equipment that we were selling. Very friendly guy. He was a veteran from the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War. Very friendly fellow. Remember as we walked in the house towards the basement, his wife was sitting, the basement went, steps went down this way. His wife was sitting right there at the edge of the steps on a couch, staring at her computer. I remember just before we turned to walk down, the man turned to his wife and said, hey, I'd like to introduce to you my coworker, Todd Miller. She never looked up from the computer. She never gave any recognition that anybody was talking to her. She stared straight ahead. And all of a sudden, I could hear my heart beating. You know, like you could just, you could feel the tension. And it was quiet. And she stared straight ahead. And he didn't quite know what to do. And he said, how can you embarrass me in front of my friends? And now I can really hear my heart beating. And I'm thinking, you got a trap door or something. I don't want to be here. She still did not look up from her screen, did not even acknowledge anyone's presence. I don't think I've ever been in anything so tense in my life. I tried to be friendly and speak to her and say, we really appreciate your husband as part of the team. He's doing an incredible job. Never looked up, never even acknowledged that someone spoke to her. Within weeks, I believe it was just a few weeks I believe it was about four weeks, three weeks. There was a newspaper article. My co-worker was in jail awaiting trial for a murder of the person he'd grown to hate. How did it get there? These things are real that people are dealing with. The, the tension in that relationship was not imagined. It, it was something that was real. How did it get to that place? He knew how to win a war. He'd been through two of them. But this was a war only forgiveness could win. message for today is forgiven. Forgiven. Do we understand how important forgiveness really is? What a word. When you try to grab a hold of the word forgiven, can we even understand how important it is to life? With its breathing to relationships, what air is that we breathe to real life. What a word. Forgiven. In Genesis 3, we have the fall of man. And it's a black picture, a travailing picture. Death descends. But then this word God introduces to man... Forgiven. Can you imagine if you had never heard of that word? Forgiven. God introduces that word in the book of Genesis. Does anyone know how God introduces the word? What account 
does he use to bring out this word forgiven? Does anybody have a guess? Does anyone know? First time forgiveness is mentioned in Scripture is the account of Joseph. You say, well, shouldn't it be back there in Genesis 3 where God says, you know, death descends, but forgiveness will come to you as well? Shouldn't it be forgiveness laid out between God and man? What could create a more clear picture, a distinct picture of what forgiveness is than the story of Joseph? This is the first time it's mentioned in Genesis 50.17. So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin. For they did unto thee evil, and now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. Forgiveness. So it creates this picture, this distinct picture. Those brothers could never say, Joseph, we'll make it up to you. They could never say that. There is, there is no way. If they would come to Joseph and say, look, we know we sold you. We know we acted like we killed you. And yeah, we did a lot of things that we shouldn't have done, but we'll make it up to you. There's no way. <clears throat> if they would say, we will satisfy our debt by working hard for you, we'll satisfy our debt to you by giving you $5 million, they would only prove that to Joseph they don't understand the debt they owed him because of what they put him through. Giving gifts of appreciation is good. It's respectful to one who has forgiven you. But it never satisfies the debt for mistreatment. The first time forgiveness is used in the Word of God is to create a picture for us to understand what is forgiveness. Like Joseph forgave his brethren. It's the first time it's used in Scripture in relation to sin. Leviticus 4.20 We're going to go through a couple Scriptures just briefly and then we'll look to a longer passage in the New Testament. Leviticus 4.20 is the first time it's in relation to sin. And it says, And he shall do with the bullock as he did with the bullock for a sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make an atonement for them and it shall be forgiven them. God is saying that atonement, the blood of atonement from the bullock is going to bring forgiveness to these people. And over 60 times in the Old Testament it refers to forgiveness or pardon. And this is amazing. It's probably about 45 or 50 times out of all those occurrences are in the law. Now we usually look at the law and say, oh, it's demanding. It's, it's, it's so legalistic. And yet the law is actually what was bringing hope of forgiveness in so many ways. Now we look at these two accounts and think more about the story of Joseph. In the account of Joseph, you, you don't need to participate in this. I, I'm not trying to put you under pressure. But would you raise your hand if I would say, how many of you here picture yourself as Joseph? The person who's been mistreated. But the person who is valiant and forgiving. How many of you picture yourself as Joseph's brothers? I would guess nobody would raise their hand. That's, that's just my guess. You're one or the other. Um, listen to Joseph's brothers. They grieved their father and assisted in 
in quotes, slaying the Father's beloved Son. Joseph is actually actually a type of Christ. The brethren are actually a type of me and you. And Joseph redeemed his brothers. They, they were starving in, a, in their land. And Joseph said, you come, I'll take complete care of you. You just come over here, I'll take complete care of you. There was a redemption extended to them. Joseph is actually a type of Christ. Usually we try to elevate ourselves to the position of, I'm the Joseph. And we don't understand, really? Actually, the type of Joseph's brothers is played out too many times in our own lives. Especially in relation to our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The word forgiveness. When God uses the account of Joseph to explain forgiveness, no one can say, I don't know what it means and I don't know what it looks like. I love the fact that Jesus has come to us just like Joseph went to his brethren and says, you're forgiven. And he wept when they came to him. Jesus Christ has come to me and you. In your wretchedness and in your blindness and in your meanness and says, I've forgiven you when we've come and laid it out before Him. Now there's another story in the Scriptures that explains the opposite of forgiveness. There was a man named Haman who built a gallows 50 cubits high with which to hang Mordecai. Do you know how high 50 cubits high is? Those of you going home past Joe's farm this afternoon... Look at the 80-foot silo. That's not far off. It's about 75 feet. Somebody put 2x4s and 2x8s and 2x6s together and built a gallows to hang somebody as high as Joe's silo. It just blows my mind. And one day, early in the morning, if you would have walked by the city of Shushan you would have seen a body dangling from the gallows 75 feet high and the vultures already circling around it. But it was not the body of Mordecai. It was the body of Haman himself. Haman was a victim of hate and revenge, not of another's, but of his own. This is a sobering part for me. Every soul can hate There's no one here without that ability. Nobody. Every one of us have the capacity to hate. So everyone in here has the capacity of the making of Haman. Now, I've never seen somebody go to the lumber yard and I've never seen anybody do that and order... $500, $800 of lumber because they're going to build 80 feet of scaffolding and they're going to build it 80 feet high and they're going to hang somebody. I've never heard of anybody doing that in church or outside of church. Never heard of it. But I believe you understand when I say I meet people every day who are dangling from the scaffold of unforgiveness. Something came up between them and someone else and now I just can't go there. 
Haman was hanging from his own scaffold. And how many times have we, in our church settings, hung from our own scaffold that we set for someone else? We have to understand a few things. I am a very forgiving person until someone misuses me. And I think you can relate. You're a very forgiving, you're a very giving person. But if someone that loves you misuses you, well, that's a different story. We have to understand something. Revenge and hatred have their foundation on being hurt and feeling hurt. Physical pain, disappointment, misunderstanding, who knows what it is, but through that hurt that we experience, revenge and hatred base their foundation on that hurt. Every anger, every revenge, every hatred have their foundation on someone hurt me. The man who was my co-worker, it all boiled down to an experience where he realized somebody hurt me and I'm not getting over this. And it built and it built and it built. But also, every act of forgiveness also has its foundation on hurt as well. Or else you don't have forgiveness. There has to be that hurt. It's just on one plant it's going to grow bitterness and contempt and revenge. And on the other plant, that hurt will actually grow a beautiful plant of forgiveness. You're forgiven. May Carly was 12 years old when a neighbor came to her father asking for help. The neighbor's mortgage was due and unless he came up with $1,800 by the end of the month, the bank would take his farm away. May's dad lent the neighbor the money and after a year, that neighbor, Mr. Carly, didn't make one payment on that mortgage. Not one payment. Understand this. The, the Bible says the wicked borrow and pay not again. The wicked do that. <clears throat> the neighbor came up with an idea how he would not have to pay it back. One night as May's dad, Mr. Carly, was driving into town, the neighbor rammed his car into the side of Mr. Carly's car and then drove away, hoping he was dead. A good Samaritan found the injured man, brought him to town, brought him to the clinic or the old-style hospital. There was no doctor available at the clinic, so he left Mr. Carly there, seated on the sidewalk, leaning against the building, and he ran off to find his local doctor out in the community to bring him back to help Mr. Carly. While Mr. Carly was waiting, the neighbor came by, saw Mr. Carly there, stopped his car, got out of his car, went over to Mr. Carly, and kicked him in the face as hard as he could. Mr. Carly flattened out on the ground. People probably would have thought he was dead. The neighbor got in his vehicle and raced off. Mr. Carly spent a year and a half in the hospital before he finally died. This is what grips me. Before he died, he called all five children together and said this, Please promise me that you'll never say an unkind word against our neighbor and his children. 
They deserve to grow up as respected children in the town they've always lived in. And you'll never be happy if you let hatred stay in your heart. And he died. Turn to Matthew 18. Forgiveness. I'm not here to put you on the spot, but I'm here to say, I guarantee you every one of you had an experience to forgive someone every day last week. You've had to forgive your wife. You've had to forgive your husband. You've had to forgive people who unknowingly or knowingly crushed your plans. I so appreciate this man's testimony. He said, children, don't say one word against the man who murdered me. Not one word. Or his children. Peter was a man who asked questions that I appreciate. He was just blunt and let's get this out in the open. He said to the Lord in verse 21, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall I Shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? And Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. How's this? So if that neighbor man's kicking him not seven times in the face, but 490 times in the face, what gives? What we have to understand is when we forgive, it's not because someone deserves it. Or else it's not forgiveness. It's because God requires us to forgive. That's why we forgive. Not because someone deserves it. Matthew 6, 9, or sorry, Matthew 6, 14. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Mark 11.25 And when ye stand praying, forgive. If ye have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, verse 26, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. This is really sobering. Because far less events than Mr. Carly can happen to us and just have this nagging suspicion, revenge. We're not going to hang anybody from a gallows, but too many times we're hanging from the gallows of frustration and revenge. It's incredible how we can keep a list in our minds of others' failures. My sister, the way she talks, is that any wonder I don't have anything to do with her. You know why I moved to Hayward? The, the pastor who I was at in Pennsylvania, do you know what he did? Okay. So what's wrong with the church that you moved from? And here we go. One, two, three, four. And none of them have anything to do with me. You can't relate? They have nothing to do with me. 
It's, it's so easy for this to exalt others' bad intentions and to overlook our worst failures. It didn't have anything to do with me. It was all them. The reason we don't have a relationship isn't because I'm unforgiving. It's because they're just a pain to live with and pain to talk to. And they're exhausting. And, they're, and we can go down our long line. Down our long list. And he says, if you're standing up, even while you're standing, forgive. Don't even take time to sit down and think it through. You better forgive and get that through. Lay down the revenge. Matthew 18. On the heels of what he says here until 70 times 7, comes verse 23. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king which would take account of his servants... And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. Or some people say it's about $10 million in today's terms. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. The same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants which owed him an hundred pence and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, Pay me what thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him saying, Have patience with me and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him and said, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my Father also do unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. This is really important. That you from your heart forgive not every one his trespasses. You ever live a tormented life? High stress life? It's it's really easy. If you say, you know, life's too easy, I want stress don't forgive someone, you'll have more stress than what you can deal with. There's things in this passage that are incredibly important for us to be understood how, how forgiveness works. Um, we get this generic definition of forgiveness. And I, I believe it, it just behooves us to be scripturally sound in what is forgiveness? How does forgiveness look? How is it expressed that Jesus requires it of us. There's a few things that we want to understand from this passage as we look at it. Number one is repentance does not eliminate accountability. It increases it. Repentance does not eliminate accountability. It increases it. Someone who has repented has more of an obligation than someone who had no need of forgiveness there. Would it have been wrong to tell for the servant 
to tell another man, pay me what thou owest, if the servant wasn't just forgiven everything he was owed. Would there have been anything wrong for that servant to go out and say, hey, you owe me a hundred pence. It's time to pay up. That wasn't the problem as such. The problem as such was you just received all this forgiveness because you repented and said, hey, I can't pay. And now for you who has repented, you are more under obligation that you forgive others. If you never had need of repentance, you go and collect every debt that somebody ever owed you. But if you need forgiveness, then you may not, under any circumstances, go to someone with your hand around their throat to get the point across, saying, pay me what thou owest. Someone who reacts to closer scrutiny and elevated transparency is actually not repentant. Think that through. It's easy for me, if Linwood says this is a problem in my life, and I say, hey, I'm sorry about that. And he says, and, Todd, for, to make sure that that's, you know, you're real on this and you get victory on this, uh, you really need to be accountable to such and such a thing. And I'm saying, hey, I said I'm sorry. I just don't want to change. Is that all right? That's who we are as people. The importance is that we recognize what is forgiveness? What is repentance? Um, Luke 17, if you can turn there, Luke 17, we're going to read five verses there. And it lays out a very good explanation of repentance. Or forgiveness, sorry. Verse, chapter 17, verse 1, Then he said unto his disciples, It is impossible but that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than he should offend one of these little ones. Now, this is an incredible statement. You know, Jesus understands our makeup of a fallen nature. And because of that, he says, it is impossible, but that offenses will come because of our fallen nature. But if you cause someone to be offended, friends, you're in serious trouble. And we have to understand, wrong words cause offense. Ungodly music causes offense. When we cause others to stumble in these things, God says, you're in serious trouble with me. You don't cause people to be offended. But then he says, verse 3, Take heed to yourselves. This is important for each of us. If thy brother trespass against thee, look at these steps, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. And the apostles said the right thing. Lord, increase our faith. You get a vision of, how is this going to help anybody? And God says, I'll take care of that. Seven times, He says, hey, look, I'm sorry about that. 
Next hour, same song, second verse. Sorry about that. He would say, are you really sorry about that? Look what he says. The process of repentance. Now look at the scripture real carefully though. When there's an offense, you will rebuke them. You'll say, hey, that, that hurt. That wasn't right. And then it says that word there, that, that two letter word. It says, if, if he repent, forgive him. So now the question comes, if, he doesn't repent, do we still need to forgive? Because it says, if he repent, forgive him. I, I want to look at a, a few things here on the word repent. Repentance is never an attempt to avoid consequences or the penalty of sin. This is ingrained in our culture. I'm going to look at that in a little bit more, but look at this process. There's an offense, there's rebuke, there's repentance, there's forgiveness. <coughs> repentance. If someone murdered, if someone murdered someone, if my co-worker was part of this church, got angry and murdered someone, should he think that the church should help everyone forgive by not informing the law so that consequences can be avoided because he's forgiven? You think that would be right? Is that why we seek repentance? Please forgive me because I don't want to face a death penalty. If that's true, you're not repentant. Repentant means, hey, I've done wrong. The consequences are there. Forgiveness doesn't alleviate that. Forgiveness lays down the right to revenge. If someone abuses a child and thinks the church is being unforgiving, if they do not shield the abuser from the consequences of the law, it happens in many, many churches. And that's a shame. That's not forgiveness. That person will deal with that guilt for the rest of their life. A man with AIDS due to a lifestyle of sodomy can repent of his sin. That does not change the fact that he will bear the consequences of his choices. It does change the fact of his standing in relationship with God who forgave him. Forgiveness, I say, releases the offender. The offender doesn't owe me. Does that mean, hey, if I've, if I've done wrong to stand, I, I need to quick say, please forgive me, and then after, I, hey, there's no consequences. I mean, it's so easy to fall trapped to that. And it's easy even to train, train our children in that way. I, I would say this. 
Avoiding consequences of action is detrimental to every society. There's no society, church, world, anybody, that's going to survive if, if somehow we've come up with a way to avoid consequences of actions. You say, well, then it isn't forgiveness, right? And what defines our forgiveness? Our, our own idea, or is it, is it what Jesus has said, how he, how he has laid out? If he repent, forgive him. If there's a child who has sinned and need biblical correction, and parents say, ah, I forgive you, don't do it again. You're teaching that child a whole lot. Just get forgiveness, and then there's no consequences. You think a society can survive that way? I don't know that it can. Very long. I like what John Piper said on this subject. The aim of the God-sent consequences of forgiveness are to demonstrate that exceeding, sorry, to demonstrate the exceeding evil of sin. Number two, to show that God does not take sin lightly. Number three, to humble and sanctify the forgiven sinner. To demonstrate that God believes and recognizes sin as exceedingly sinful. To show that God does not take sin lightly. Number three, to humble and sanctify the forgiven sinner. So how do we balance forgiveness and accountability? Forgiveness releases the right for revenge and puts that into God's hands, who puts the responsibility in the hands of dads, the law, the church brotherhood. You you don't have to deal with it. You can say, Lord, I, I give this into your hands. If the law steps in and says, let's let him go. You don't have to deal with it. You have forgiven the man. You, you don't have to say, unless I get this sentence, I'm not going to be happy. You can say, Lord, that's all yours. But there is where God has set authority, and we hate authority in too many ways today. And authority has overstepped its bounds in so many ways. But God has placed authority there that I don't need to step out and unforgive someone. I can simply commit that to the Lord and allow Him to deal with it through His faucets, I guess if you want to, if you would, His faucets of authority. When we sneer at authority, whatever that authority is, we're creating an atmosphere of see what you can get away with and we're destroying our example to the coming generation. Accountability is part of this process here of finding forgiveness. Someone who doesn't go through this process will not enjoy the life of forgiveness. It's available to them, but they're not living in that life of forgiveness. So this is the next question. How can I forgive if they never said sorry? Can I forgive someone who's never said sorry if they never came to this part right here and said I repent? Can I forgive them?
I would like to say this. The biggest question is more than can I forgive them? The biggest question is how are you going to live in response to them? Can there be that level of forgiveness in relationship? Without this, no. However, we have a calling as Christians. Before I go there, the calling, I want to say this. We focus so many times on, well, they never said sorry. I I don't want to put the men on the spot, but probably most of the men could say, you know, my wife did something in the past year, and I could have really taken offense to that. And I, I do kind of. She never really said sorry. Even though I I talked to her about it, she just thought, hey, let me explain my viewpoint here. And if you understand my viewpoint, you know, there's no need for repentance. Well, that's not saying I'm sorry. It would be nice if it would be, but that's not. Um, now I'll be blunt. I only know of one person off the top of my head who's good at saying I'm sorry. It's not me. And you know that better than I know that. How many people are good at saying I'm sorry? The person who has given me this example, these are three things that it seems like when they say I'm sorry, this this is what revolves in that decision of them saying that. They're coming to the table saying, I'm sorry, and it's more important to hear than to be heard. Most most of us, when we say, I'm sorry, I repent, and let me tell you why I did what I did. We want to give reasons. And we want to be heard. Or we'll look like a jerk. We'll look like somebody who's not a Christian. And we want to redeem ourselves. And they they just lay it out. I'm sorry. And can you tell me more here? They want to hear more than being heard. Secondly, they attempt to recognize wrongs rather than downplay them. Now that will nail your pride if nothing else does. Attempt to recognize wrongs rather than downplay them. And number three is the beautiful part of it. When they say they're sorry, they're not creating a tense atmosphere. They're not, they, I can say it this way, they let go of their ego a long time ago. It, it just, to them, I'm sorry. I, I'm not saying that to make you tense. There's this thing that's called human nature that keeps us from being very good at this. Are you good at saying I'm sorry? You might be the person I was thinking of. I hope your wife and your husband and your children say, no, I'm sure that it was my mom or my dad. I know that it was. But I don't know if they're thinking that right now or not. I don't know if their mom and dad are thinking, no, that's my son, that's my daughter. I don't have any question there. 
That's how good you are at relationships. We can take a five-step course on building relationships and if we're not good at saying I'm sorry because we all fail, we're bad at relationships. Many times we look at that inadequate action because I'm poor at saying I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Someone can look and say, well, that was an inadequate action. And now, let me make a judgment call and say, well, they weren't sorry. And so I can respond to them differently because this process wasn't followed. They didn't really repent. This is what Jesus says to us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy adversary, one who opposes you. An adversary can be in your own own house, in your own church, in your own business, in your own community. You have him and I have him. One who opposes you. But I say unto you, love your adversary, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth his reign on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same, and if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans the same. Ephesians 4.32 And be ye kind. See, a lot of times we look and say, well, if they weren't repentant, how, how can we be forgiven? That's resting with them, but this is what's resting with us. Bless them. Love them. Do good to them. Pray for them. Assist them. And Ephesians 4 lays it out this way, And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. We, we, what a tangled web we weave. It's called relationships. My brother is an expert fisherman. I would put him in the expert category. He was fishing out for walleye on Lake, Lake Erie. And he went to make a cast. And because the string was getting old, it learns the pattern of that wraparound at the at the base, you know what happens, Mark? It all gets a big tangled mess when he goes to cast if the string is too worn. It's a mess. And you know what most people do? They sit there and they pick at it. Pick, pick, pick. Let's get this thing untangled so we can fish. It happened to my brother and the guide came over with his clippers and snip. And my brother looked at it and he said, you cut the line. And I like what the guide said. He said, you're not one of those nuts that sits there and picks at it, are you? <laughs> no, no, I'm with you. you know. <laughs> you can't fish and pick at the line. Somewhere you're going to have to say, you know, I don't know and I don't understand. And now we need to go back to our work. That's every relationship here. That's my relationship with you. 
That's my relationship with my wife. That's my relationship with my family. Somewhere we have to say, hey, we're not helping picking. We're not doing the work we're called to do. It's time to fish. Forgiveness. Not far from New York, there's a cemetery with a grave which has very little inscribed on its headstone. In fact, on this headstone for the grave, there's no name, there's no date of birth, there's no date of death, there is no art, there is no epitaph, there is no eulogy. There's just one word written on the grave, forgiven. That's the greatest thing that can be said upon anyone's grave when it's all said and done. Man knows one thing is absolutely sure. He's forgiven. Why? He forgave others. If you're able to, would you kneel for prayer? Father in heaven, I thank you for your word this morning. Lord, so many times in our interactions and in our relationships at church, at home, at work, in our community, we get tense because we want to be right. We want to be. Lord, help us to understand the forgiveness that you've granted to us and that we can forgive one another. Lord, I pray that as we live out your truth, that this would be the ingredient in our lifestyle. And this could be the hope that we can reach out to others, that they can also be forgiven and live in the joy of forgiveness. Um, And I also pray for Troy and the difficulty that he's in even today. Lord, that he could find forgiveness as well. Lord, thank you for the opportunity we could share together today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm afraid it's number 300.